Good morning. Glad to see you this morning. If you're a first-time guest here, we are glad you're here with us. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you are most welcome here. If you are new with us or if it's been a while since you've been with us, you should know that we are making our way through a series on the book of Philippians. And this morning, that means that we've landed in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. We like to take books of the Bible here at Free Money Free and preach to them verse by verse because as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. We really do believe that this book is the Word of God, that it's breathed out by God, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your Word this morning. Oh, and it is our prayer that we would be able to hear clearly from your Word. We know that there's, there's a lot going on in the world around us. There's a lot going on in our personal lives. But what we need this morning is to hear from you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us the ability to hear your word and then be transformed by it. We pray that your spirit would be at work in a powerful way. God, we're pausing to pray here, not just because we know we should, but more importantly, because we know we desperately need to. Because if anything is going to happen, even as we're reminded in our passages today, it will be because you are at work. And so we pray that you would do a work this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, a few years back now, I read a book by Sinclair Ferguson entitled The Whole Christ. That's the short title. The long title is The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Morrow Controversy Still Matters. In his book, Ferguson dives into a theological controversy, the Morrow Controversy, that erupted in a small town in Scotland in the early 1700s. The controversy centered around a book entitled The Morrow of Modern Divinity, which was written in 1645 by a man named Edward Fisher. Needless to say, this book was not light reading. It was an incredibly helpful book and one I would highly recommend. But anytime you're diving into obscure theological debates from Scotland in the 1700s, and that debate is based upon a book written in 1645, you know you are probably about to swim in the deep end. And indeed, the whole Christ is a heavy read. Even having read the book a couple of times, I'm still not sure I could accurately articulate all the issues that occasioned the moral controversy. But what I can tell you is this, in its most basic form, the controversy is centered around a proper biblical understanding of the relationship between God's grace and our work. And in essence, that's the theme that Ferguson runs with in his book. He takes the moral controversy and he uses that as a springboard to have a biblical discussion about how do we understand the connection between our work and God's grace. And it's that relationship between grace and works, which was at the center of the moral controversy, that also comes to the forefront in our passage today. And actually, that's why I bring up the book, The Whole Christ. Sometimes we read passages like the one we're about to read, and we have theological debates about what the passages mean, and we assume that we're the first persons to ever have the debate. But that is rarely true. The reality is, most of the time, the theological debates we have today are debates that people have been having for a really long time. Case in point, the passage we're about to read raises some theological questions about our effort in God's grace. But what we need to understand is these questions are not new. Even in the 1700s in Scotland, people were debating these things. And truth be known, they were debating it long before that too. For example, the book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament, seems to be centered on the same questions. What's the nature of the relationship between grace and works? So needless to say, the topic we're about to delve into is one that has been discussed before and no doubt will be discussed again. But my hope this morning is this. As we read Philippians 2, 12 to 18, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be gracious to us this morning and help us to understand better the nature of the connection between grace and works. 
It's a heavy topic, no doubt, but one that we must dive into because the Word of God is pointing us in that direction. So that said, let's stand here if you're physically able. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. The words will be on the screen. The reason we stand is just to remind ourselves it's the Word of God and as such as do our attention. So Philippians 12, or excuse, excuse me, Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. The Word of God says this beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So the main exhortation of this passage comes in verse 12, and without question, it is an exhortation that has been debated plenty over the years. After referring to the Philippians as his beloved and reminding them of their past obedience, Paul tells the Philippians to, quote, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now the big question this morning is simply, what does Paul mean when he says to work out your salvation? Is he suggesting to the Philippians that they must work in order to earn salvation, in order to earn peace with God? Or is he saying that the Philippians must do their part in order to secure salvation? God does his part, now you do yours. Or is he saying something else? Now, in answering that question, I think we need to introduce a couple of important biblical principles or or, or principles of biblical interpretation this morning. All right, so principle number one is this. The best interpretive key for understanding Scripture is other Scripture. What I mean by that is this, if we're going to try to understand Philippians 2.12, we have to put Philippians 2.12 in the context of the rest of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible is clear, salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, not by works. It's crystal clear, Ephesians 2.8.9, for it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So in light of what we read in passages like Ephesians 2 or Titus 3, Paul cannot mean here, when he says to work out your salvation, he cannot mean that the Philippians must work in order to earn their salvation, in order to be right with God. Nor can he mean that the Philippians now must do their part to secure their salvation. Both of those things would fly in the face of what the rest of the Bible teaches. So he must mean something else here. The question is, what does he mean? Now, to answer that question, I think we need to introduce a second principle of biblical interpretation. And the second principle is this. We must interpret each passage of Scripture in its own context. So how do we know what verse 12 means? Well, we look at the verses around it, the context. So let's go back to last week, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Remember in last week, Paul challenged the Christians in Philippi to set aside their own interest and live for others. And one of the ways he motivated them to do this was by pointing to the example of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11. Jesus took on human flesh, Paul told the Philippians, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as we saw in verses 9 to 11, God has highly exalted him. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's the context leading up to verse 12. That Jesus obeyed to the point of death. Therefore, he's highly exalted. 
So in light of that context, now let's read again how verse 12 starts. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is my absence, but much more, or my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so another hint for biblical interpretation. When you see a therefore, you have to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? In this case, I think Paul's pointing us back to verses 5 through 11. And what he's saying is this, if one day every knee will bow to Jesus, and one day every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, if that's where the universe is headed, then you should go ahead and start obeying now. Furthermore, if Jesus obeyed and was vindicated, then we as Christians should have a desire to obey as well, knowing that one day our obedience will be vindicated too. In other words, the context leading up to verse 12 would suggest this is not a passage about how one gets saved. Rather, this is a passage about how one should act in light of who Jesus is and what he's done and in light of the salvation we have in Christ. Because we've been saved by Christ's work on the cross, because Jesus obeyed the Father and was vindicated, because every knee will one day bow before Christ, as his followers, we should therefore, there's that word, therefore, we should strive to live in a way that's consistent with our salvation. We should obey because Jesus obeyed, and we should obey knowing that all of the universe is headed in that direction. To work out our salvation, then, is not implying that we work in order to earn salvation or that we should contribute to our salvation. Rather, it's a phrase that simply means you should live in light of what Jesus has done for you. We should live in a way that reflects the salvation we've received by trusting in Christ. As those who've been set apart by God's grace, we should live a life that is set apart in order to honor Jesus. Now, to be sure, how we do this has been the occasion of much theological debate as well. Is living out our salvation something we do or something God does in us? Or is it both? Again, I think verses 12 and 13 help us to answer the question. So let's look again at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so when it comes to this question, well, how do we live out our Christian faith? Is it us or is it God? I think there are two errors we can make. There's a ditch on both sides of the road, and both, both of those ditches are equally dangerous. Ditch number one or error number one. We can assume that God is the one who rescues us from our sin, but living out the Christian life is then up to us. Some people have said it this way, well, God does his part, now you do yours. But that does not make sense of verse 13. In verse 13, we're told that it's God who works in us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Verse 13 would imply then that not only is God the one who saves us, God is also the one who gives us new desires to live in a certain way and the one who empowers us to live in light of those desires. In other words, he's the one who gives us the strength to be able to work out our salvation as we're told to do in verse 12. God is the one who empowers us. This is entirely consistent with the rest of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, God gifts us in order that we can serve the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, God equips us so we can do every good thing according to his will. It would be a colossal mistake then to say, well, God's the one who justifies us. In other words, God's the one who declares us not guilty through the work of Christ on the cross. But sanctification, the process of growing like Christ, that's up to us. Now, that would be a colossal mistake because clearly it is God who works in us both to will and to act according to his pleasure. So we cannot fall into the error of thinking, well, living out the Christian faith, that's completely up to us. But there's an error on the other side of the road. And that error is this. 
we could assume that because God is at work in us, we don't need to do anything. To use a popular phrase, we can just let go and let God. But that does not make any sense of verse 12. For Paul to tell the Philippians, you must work out your salvation, implies the Philippians are going to have to work. He doesn't tell them, hey, sit back, just wait for God to do his thing. Why don't you just relax? God will do it. No, he says, work out your salvation. So what's the story here? When it comes to living out the Christian faith, is this something that we do or something that God does? Well, I think the answer is both. Now, again, to be clear, God is the one who rescues us from our sin. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace alone. But as we strive to live out our salvation, this is something that requires both our effort and God's work in us. As some commentators have said it, we work out because God has worked in. Or as Colossians 1 puts it, we toil with all his energy that works in us. So on the one hand, we are completely dependent upon his work if we're going to be obedient. But on the other hand, we have to work if we're going to live out the Christian life. So that's the main charge here, Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obviously, there's a lot more we could say about this. There's a lot more we could say about the relationship between grace and works. And I have no doubt that 18th century Scottish guys would say a lot more about it too. But for now, we can summarize by simply saying this. Paul is not talking about how we're saved in verses 12 to 13. Instead, he's telling us we should live in light of our salvation, and we should do so knowing that we must be dependent upon God's work in us, but at the same time, we make effort. So that's the main setup here, and the general exhortation of verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the verses that follow, Paul starts to give a practical example of what this might look like. And he does that in verse 14. He gives a specific, concrete application. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I'll admit, when I think about working out my salvation, I probably think of things like sharing the gospel with lost people, reading my Bible, going to church, serving those in need, giving generously. And obviously, all those are good things. But when Paul thinks of a specific application for the Philippians in terms of how they might work out their salvation, the example he gives is this. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. That's interesting. And in that, I think we're reminded that living out the Christian faith is not just about overt acts of religion. Going to church, reading your Bible, giving, doing those things. Rather, living out the Christian faith is about our hearts. It's about the way in which we view circumstances and the way in which we view people. Namely, in the context of Philippians 2, are we the type of person that grumbles and complains about people and circumstances, both out loud and in our hearts? Or are we the type of person that trusts God, even in hard circumstances, and looks to be at peace with others? Now, here's the challenge in asking those questions the challenge in asking those questions is that we tend to downplay this particular sin. When it comes to sin, grumbling and arguing are sins that we tend to treat as if they're not a big deal. If someone cusses in front of our children, we get really worked up. If we hear of a sexual sin, we're scandalized. If someone blatantly lies to us, we get offended. But if someone grumbles in front of us, we don't even blink an eye. I mean, after all, in comparison to lying or sexual morality, is grumbling really that big of a deal? But before we let ourselves off the hook here, perhaps we should think a bit more carefully about this passage. The language that's used here in Philippians 2 is clearly language that was also used back in the Old Testament 
when talking about the Israelites wandering in the desert. Maybe you remember the situation from the Old Testament. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. God miraculously leads them out of slavery. He sends the plagues on Egypt. He parts the Red Seas. He delivers them in a spectacular fashion. And then the Israelites get out into the desert, and what do they do? Do they praise God and they say, oh, that was great. Thank you, God. No, what they do is they start grumbling. Now, of course, to be fair to the Israelites, the context that they were in was difficult. Living in the desert was not easy. But given what, they would given what they'd experienced, you would expect that they would have a little more trust in God. But instead, they grumble, they complain against Moses and ultimately against God. Now, I think we need to be fair to the Philippians here. It does not seem that the Philippians were grumbling against Paul or grumbling directly against God. More likely, they were grumbling and disputing with one another. But the root issue is still the same. Grumbling about people is ultimately grumbling that's directed against God. Because after all, if God is in control of all things, which the Bible clearly teaches He is, Ephesians 1, Isaiah 46, then grumbling and complaining about our circumstances, whether we know it or not, is ultimately a complaint directed against God. And thus, grumbling and disputing is a big deal, which is why Paul brings it up here. And in verses 15 to 16, he expands on that as to why it's a big deal. Verse 15, let me go back to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When we trust God and we look to be at peace with others, in other words, when we don't grumble or dispute, we become blameless and innocent children. Or to say another way, giving up grumbling and disputing is part of the sanctification process in which we become more like Jesus, hence the language of blameless and innocent. And when this happens, Paul says, when you give up grumbling or disputing, you have an opportunity to shine like a light in a crooked and twisted generation. I think this is a word we need to hear today because let's be honest, we live in a world full of grumblers and disputers. If you don't believe me, hop on social media and just look for a second, you'll realize everybody loves to grumble and dispute. Or if you don't believe me, hop on the Fremont Tribune comment section, which I told you last week is a dangerous thing to do. But if you do it, you're going to discover quickly, everybody likes to grumble and complain. This is the world we live in. Our generation is just as, as crooked and twisted as the generation Paul's addressing here. What Paul's saying is, if you can avoid this, you have an opportunity to shine like a light in a crooked and twisted generation. Now, the problem for us as Christians is this. While the world around us likes to grumble and dispute, if we're honest, we kind of like to do it too. And in doing that, we're missing out on an opportunity. We're missing out on an opportunity to be different. Our family has been to a lot of hospitals over the course of the last several years. I'm telling you this, if you want to stick out as different in a hospital, it's not that hard. Hospitals are a breeding ground for grumbling and complaining and harsh words. So if you're joyful and content in hard circumstances and kind to others, you will stick out like a sore thumb. In fact, just yesterday, I was at the hospital with my wife. And I overheard one of the nurses say to the other nurse, she, she, the, the, she said to him, she said, she's got a great spirit. Well, yeah, she, it's because she has the spirit, right? And she's living according to the spirit. That's why she has joy in the midst of hard circumstances. And because of that, the nurses noticed and they stuck out. Now, I know Tanya wouldn't have felt comfortable with me saying that, but she's not here today, so I'll share that story with you anyway. 
But I think that's the point Paul's making here. If we're content because we trust God, if we look to be at peace with others, then we'll shine like stars in a crooked and twisted generation. As we hold fast to the word of life by trusting God and loving others, we will be different. And we'll also be more prepared for the return of Christ, which is how this passage ends, verses 16 to 18. Holding fast to the word of life, so then day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now Paul's analogy in verses 17 to 18 is kind of hard to track. But I think his main point is simply this. He wants the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling so that on the day of Christ, when Jesus returns, they'll be ready. And if that happens, Paul is saying, then he will die a happy man because he knows his labor will not have been in vain. Even if he has to suffer or die for his faith, I think that's what he's getting at when he talks about being poured out like a drink offering. Even if he has to suffer or die for his faith, as long as the Philippians are living for Jesus, then he will be glad and rejoice. And he encourages them to do the same. And that's the way the passage ends, with Paul looking toward eternity and putting the Philippians' actions in the context of eternity also. Now, having said all that, I think there's some important lessons we can take away from this passage. It's those lessons I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about. More specifically, I want to draw your attention to four lessons here from Philippians 2. Lesson number one, be intentional to work out your salvation. Again, hear me clearly. You cannot be saved by your works any more than you you can fly to the moon on a paper airplane. But if you are saved, you will want to live out your salvation. You'll want to live in a way that reflects Jesus has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of light. And to do that, to live out that glorious reality, requires some work. Hence the verbiage of verse 12, work out your salvation. My son, my oldest son, runs on the cross-country team here in Fremont. This season, they have eight meets on the schedule. That means since each race is about 3.1 miles, 5K, in total, they run about 25 miles in races all season. Not that much. But to get ready to run those 25 miles, they put in an insane amount of work in the off-season. During peak training, the guys on the team are running about 50 to 70 miles a week, about 7 to 10 miles a day. I would estimate that between the start of summer and now, my sons run about 800 miles, all for 25 miles of races. And some of those miles have come in the form of brutal workouts. In fact, when he comes home from practice and tells me about the workouts, I get tired just listening about it, let alone doing it. But there's a reason why in the last 25 years, Fremont hasn't finished outside the top five in the state in cross country and boys cross country. It's because they put the work in. But here's my question. Do we have the same level of dedication to pursuing Jesus? Do we work at it? Or do we pull the equivalent of jogging a mile each week and then hoping we're ready for the race? When we lived in New York, I remember one of our elders telling me a story where he was meeting with a guy, and the guy was talking about how he didn't feel connected to God, and his marriage was in trouble, and his life was just a mess. And so my friend simply asked the guy, he said, well, how much are you reading the Word of God and praying? And the guy said, well, not really much at all. To which my friend simply said, well, I think that might be part of the problem. Now listen, hear me. It's possible to read the Bible every day and still be lost as a goose. It's possible to pray every day and still be a total jerk to your family. But in general, if you're putting in the work of pursuing Christ, your love for Christ will grow. Conversely, if you're not willing to put the work in, it's probably unrealistic to expect growth in Christ's likeness. 
I can't tell you how many guys I've met with over the years that are struggling with some serious sin, pornography, alcohol, drugs, anger, and they tell me they want to defeat those sins, but they're unwilling to take any steps to actually do it. They want the victory, but not the work. But again, to think in that way is to live with the mindset, I'll just jog a mile and then be ready for the race. Now, to prepare or to follow Christ requires preparation, requires work and toil, but we cannot do it on our own, which leads to lesson number two. We should be humble and recognize that it is God who works in us. Now, the phrase at the end of verse 12 is really interesting. Again, the end of verse 12 says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? At the very least, I think it means this, that we recognize our human limitations. We tremble and we stand in fear because we recognize we can't do this on our own. We are completely dependent upon God. And I think that's the connection between verses 12 and 13. Listen again to how verse 12 ends and then how it springs into verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the humbling reality. You cannot wake up one day and decide, I'm going to stop sinning today. I will now obey Christ. I've decided. It doesn't work that way. In fact, to illustrate that, think about this. Chances are at some point in your life, you probably committed some sin and then th- said to yourself, or maybe said out loud, I will never do that again. I'll never speak to my spouse like that again. I'll never get drunk like that again. I'll never look at pornography again. I'll never lose my temper at my kids like that again. And yet the next week or the next month or sometimes even in the next hour, you find yourself back in the same situation. Why is that? It's because we can't just will ourselves to be more obedient. It requires the work of God, which is why anyone who is serious about defeating sin, and I hope that describes every person in this room, But anyone who's serious about sin will also be a person who's serious about prayer and serious about asking God to help. As we lean on the Spirit's power, as we pray and read the Word, as we grow in our love for Christ, it's then and only then that by the power of the Spirit we'll be able to overcome sin and walk in obedience. And by the way, if we have overcome sin at all, or if we have walked in obedience at all, it's only because of the work of God in us also which means there's no room for boasting or arrogance. Instead, there's only room for gratitude. Any victory you've had or will have in the future comes from Him. Yes, we work out our salvation, but we do so in complete dependence upon Him. So that's the second lesson here. We need to be humble in recognizing that God works in us. Lesson number three, we should be content in our relationships and in our hearts. Again, the surprising application of verse 14 in terms of how we work out our salvation is that we should not grumble or dispute. Now, to do that requires a certain level of trust in God. Do you believe that God has placed you in your current circumstances? Do you believe that he is good? In our house, we have a quote that's hanging from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, Had any other condition been better for your soul, divine love would have put you there. In our family, we've had to remind ourselves of that quote a lot in the last couple of weeks. As my wife has gotten sicker, we've had to remember, had any other condition been better for our soul, divine love would have put us there. Now, having said that, I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes it's harder than others to believe that. In fact, this Thursday night when I took my wife to the emergency room and we waited four and a half hours to get in the ER, and then the whole time I can't go in with her, and so I'm out in the car. I'm trying to sleep in the back seat of a Taurus, which is not as comfortable as it seems. 
I'm thinking to myself, is this the best condition for my soul? And I had to fight to believe, yes, it is. I had to remind myself, God is sovereign and he's good and he's still in control. Listen, only when we believe that God is sovereign and he is good and we can trust him, it's only then that we can be free from grumbling or disputing. If we believe that God is the one orchestrating all events, not some random universe, then we can be freed up in our hearts to not grumble or dispute. Furthermore, as we realize that our identity and our approval comes from Jesus, then we can be free from disputing with other Christians. We don't need to win arguments to prove our worth or find our identity. Rather, we simply need to rest in the identity we already have in Jesus. We can be content in our hearts and our relationships because we know God is in control and we know who we are in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you this morning. If you find anger or bitterness boiling up in your soul, the solution is not found in venting your anger, exacting your revenge, winning an argument, or shaking your fists at the God of the universe. The solution is found in resting in the character of our sovereign God and remembering what Jesus did on the cross. This is what frees us from anger and bitterness. If God sent his son, you can be confident he'll take care of you. If you're in Christ, you can be confident he loves you and approves of you. You can be content in your heart and your relationships then because you know who he is and you know what he's done in Jesus. Last lesson, number four. Be diligent to hold fast to the word of life, knowing that the end is coming. Let me again look at verse 16. It says this, holding fast to the word of life so in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now it's worth noting how much Paul's joy was tied to the Philippians and how they're doing. But it's also worth noting that Paul's joy was tied towards the return of Jesus Christ. He wanted the Philippians to hold fast to the word of life so that when Christ returns, they would be vindicated and he would get the joy of knowing his labor is not in vain. But that focus on the return of Christ is something that I would argue should be part of our mindset also. Listen, I know right now it takes an incredible amount of courage to stand up against the crowds and stand up against the social media mobs and proclaim the truth of God's word and say, we believe what this word teaches. That takes courage. To live according to the word is not praised by our culture. It's not praised by Hollywood celebrities or cultural elites or the media. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you of something this morning. We're not living for the praise of crowds or Hollywood celebrities or the cultural elites. No, we are living for the praise of the king. Nor are we living for the here and now. We are living for the day when Jesus returns. We labor to pursue Christ, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know in the end, nothing else will matter. On the day that Christ returns, it will not matter how much money is in your bank account. It will not matter how many you likes you got on social media. It will not matter what your yield was this harvest. It will not matter how much your kids have accomplished. It will not matter how many places you visited on vacation. It will not matter how big your house was or what kind of car you drove. But it will matter if you pursue Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And it's for that reason that we strive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know that the day of Christ is coming. And we know that following Jesus will be worth it. So yes, there may be all kinds of debates about the phrasing used here in Philippians 2. The phrasing of what it means between the relationship between grace and works. 
There may be all kinds of debates about that, but in the end, I think it's pretty straightforward here. Jesus saved us. And because we love him, we live for him. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because of the work that he's done in us and because of the love we have for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder here that we have in Philippians 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we know that we're saved by your grace. We want to rest in that. But we also want to live in light of that salvation. We want to live out and practice what we already are in Christ. We've been set apart. Now we want to live as those have been set apart. And God, one of the practical ways we can do this is by trusting you, by not grumbling or disputing, but rather resting in the identity we have in you. And we pray that you would give us the courage to do so. So that we might shine like light in a crooked and twisted generation as we hold fast to the word of life. Please help us to do this, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.